0: Lynch, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talked to Nils Hagerdahl about his new book, Friend or Foe, Militia Intelligence and Ethnic Violence in the Lebanese Civil War, which is published by Columbia University Press. We also talked to Emily Scott about her article, Compromising Aid to Protect International Staff. And at the end, we talked to Esfandiar batban about the Iranian economy under sanctions and the possible return to the JCPOA. Thanks for listening to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Niels Hegerdahl. He's a postdoctoral researcher at Tufts University, author of the new Columbia University Press book, Friend or Foe, Militia Intelligence and Ethnic Violence in the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, Niels, thanks
1: for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to join this podcast.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. I remember seeing this uh, when it was just a a prospective manuscript, and it's wonderful to see it in print now. Um, So tell us about the the book and uh, what you were trying to do with this.
1: Absolutely. So this book, which uh, came together out of my dissertation, which I finished a a number of years ago now, uh, the book really is about the role of ethnic and sectarian identity in civil wars and specifically in civil war violence. So basically in armed conflicts, when do armed organizations attack uh, civilians or people in, in the community members based on their ethnic or sectarian identity? So especially these, these uh, extensive incidents of ethnic cleansing when, when uh, armed organizations sort of uh, um, forcibly displace all members of a select community just based on their, on their ethnic uh, or sectarian identity. That's sort of the main theme of what I study in the book from a a theoretical perspective. Uh, And specifically, then I used the case of Lebanon and the Lebanese civil war. Uh, And I think what drew me into this was many, many years ago was reading about the Lebanese civil war. And on the one hand, you read about how people say, you know, it was a Muslim versus Christian war when it broke out. And these uh, chauvinistic militias were attacking people just based on their identity. And the country just fell apart into a Christian enclave and a Muslim enclave. And that's sort of a a prominent narrative that's out there about Lebanon and specifically about the civil war in the 70s. But the thing is, then you read about it or even just like you you visit Beirut, you go walk around and you see these, how there's definitely Muslim uh, neighborhoods and Christian neighborhoods. But the country to this day is still actually quite mixed. And even in what gets labeled Christian neighborhoods, you still have mosques, right? And you walk around Muslim neighborhoods, Muslim towns, there are still Christians living there. There are still churches there. That have, you know, you can see that these are old buildings, right? These predate the Civil War. It just isn't quite true that the country split into a, a Muslim enclave and a Christian enclave, and the two groups were never able to mix whatsoever. Uh, so that, you were interested that's... in
0: explaining the variation then?
1: Exactly. Why is it that? Because, uh, of course, as anybody who reads about this conflict uh, learns about these horrific incidents of violence, uh, especially most famously the ones that the Christian militias undertook early on when the Civil War broke out like Karantina or Tel al Tel which was a Palestinian refugee camp with something like 50,000 people living there. And it was attacked by these Christian militias, and every single resident was displaced from this area. Not a single person was allowed to remain, uh, and nobody was allowed to move back there either at any point in time. So I mean, you have undeniably these de facto incidents of ethnic cleansing that are famous for, for good reason, right? Because there are these, these grotesque levels of violence Against typically civilian targets, but what's crazy then is you walk, you walk nearby to these sites. You walk, you know, a few minutes from Carantina, a few minutes away from, from Tel al Zatar. You can still see mosques there. You still can meet Muslims who are living there, where the family has been present in this location since before the civil war. And so that's exactly like you, like you put it. That's what I'm looking at. is This variation, right? Why would the same Christian militia groups forcibly displaced an entire neighborhood or an entire sort of section of the city and then leave Muslims um, be, you know, just down the street from where these massacres are occurring, basically.
0: So before we get into your argument and explanation for this variation, let's talk about the research a little bit. Uh, how did you go about uh, trying to dig into this and find out what happened?
1: Absolutely, so I think the key thing is, and, and this is what I tell everybody who's interested in doing research in the Middle East, you just have to expect to do a lot of field work. This is not something that comes quickly. This is something where you need extensive time in the field. Uh, And I think I was lucky because I was able to get a big research grant from a Swedish foundation. So I was able during grad school to go out for a full year, actually 15 months, because I went at the beginning of one summer and came home at the end of next summer. And so I sort of went out there uh, with a lot of time at my disposal. And I knew roughly what I was looking for, but I had no idea where to find it. So I was sort of out there, a little clueless, knocking on doors, trying to find people to talk to. Um, And then gradually, you know, you have a few good meetings, you meet some people who can help you uh, obtain data or tell you about specific cases that you're interested in. Um, And then usually meetings lead to more meetings. And so I think the hardest thing was getting those initial meetings. And then every uh, time I would do an interview, every time I would meet somebody interesting, somebody who could teach me something, uh, I would end the meeting by saying, okay, so who else should I be talking to? And then they usually rattle off a few names and and uh, telephone numbers. And then it's it kind of surprising from there.
0: that people were willing to talk about these um, uh, you know, these events where there was uh, these are acts of ethnic violence against their neighbors, and yet they seem to be quite talkative.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was another thing that surprised me was how how actually easy it is to talk to people about these these, uh, as you point out, quite horrific events. And I think there were a couple of things uh, that were key for this. Uh, one is in Lebanon, after the civil war, the government passed a blanket amnesty law. So there had never been uh, legal proceedings against perpetrators of abuse. There's never been um, systematic um, accountability for the people who, who uh, partake in civil war activities. And, and the reason behind this amnesty law is most of the warlords after the war ended became parliamentary politicians. And so in practice, these are sort of the, the warlords of the war, uh, turned themselves into a respectable looking government and then vote amnesty for themselves. Uh, But so one consequence of that is is that people who took place, even people who were part of the militias, you know, people who served in in mid-level positions, a couple of people I I was able to talk to who served in senior roles in wartime militias are able to talk openly about what happened during the war Um, because of this amnesty law, they're not gonna face legal um, repercussions from doing so. I will say uh, also my research does focus on the 1970s it's a little bit harder towards the second half of the 1980s because of the role of Syria. Right. And so don't go around South Beirut asking about what Syrian intelligence agents have been up to over the years. I mean, there, there are some parts of the world that are more contentious today than others, and especially anything that involves Syrian intelligence, that involves Hezbollah. Those uh, episodes involving those actors, uh, there's a lot less transparency. There's a lot less, uh, we know a lot less what happened. I think the key in the 70s is we cannot know what happened. Nobody disputes that these acts of ethnic violence took place and people can talk about them openly. And so the combination of those two has actually made, rather than people being reticent, I found them extremely talkative because everybody said, well, you're, you know, the Swedish white guy coming to the country, let me explain what actually happened. You need to understand what really happened. As so it was always like people were more talkative than I expected for these reasons.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then of course you supplement this then with some really finely grained uh, neighborhood level data. How did you find that?
1: Thank you. Uh, that was one of the hardest thing I did uh, in the time I was there was just finding this this data. It's it's really challenging to do quantitative research in, in Lebanon. Uh, and again, Um, much like there was this amnesty law after the civil war and we don't really know what happened. um, For political reasons, other things like uh, there hasn't been a census in Lebanon since 1932 because whoever thinks that they would lose out if the census more accurately reflected actual demographics uh, just blocks, just vetoes having a census. And So we don't actually have uh, just the basic stuff that you would be able to find in the United States. You know, if you did research census level uh, data that just doesn't exist. And again, as I mentioned, because of this amnesty law, there was never any legal proceedings against perpetrators. There was never truth and reconciliation work. There was never any kind of documentation. Like in South Africa, right, after apartheid, there was a systematic, um, uh, an effort to systematically go through what what abuse happened and sort of put this in the open. I think some other countries have done that as well. Lebanon, complete opposite. They just chose sort of a collective amnesia. Like, let's not talk about this. So it was really tough to find uh, data on all of these things, and that took. I started. It was one of the first things I started asking about when I did meetings at the beginning of the year, and still the second summer I was still sort of just obtaining these data sources right at the end of my time there. So it was it was a lot of work to put together these varied data sources that I use, especially on uh, demographics and on wartime wartime events. You know, violence against civilians, forced migration. Right. these things it was a lot of work uh, and it, they really came from all over they weren't from a single source um, I use for demographics the sort of base map that I use is the voter registration rules and those came from a um, Lebanese think tank meetings I had at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies and Sami Atala especially uh, was really helpful with, with helping me obtain a copy of this so that was from an NGO um, or a think tank actually an NGO other stuff came I have a Uh, there's something called the the Ministry for the Displaced uh, and they had some meetings there and they actually had a survey that they'd conducted in the 90s at one point when there was sort of an idea of of providing uh, financial compensation to people who had been victims of forced displacement. Um, So they actually done a survey which then got buried because for political reasons uh, this compensation scheme never happened. But the, the survey still existed and so one day one of my meetings that were not my first one, I don't think, but one of my early meetings in this, this ministry, um, the guy I was supposed to meet with to talk about something else, talk about one of specific cases. He just handed me the survey and said, Oh, I think this could be useful for you.
2: Nice.
1: And, and then it became one of my most valuable data sources. Um,
0: Well, why don't we talk about the argument itself then? Because you make a very interesting argument focused on what what I would consider to be legibility and information. So walk us through kind of what you think is happening when these ethnic militias are getting out there and trying to decide what to do.
1: Absolutely. So from a theoretical point, that's, that's exactly as you point out. I think information is really key in my theoretical explanation. And so my argument is really... When civil war breaks out, you have militias, and they have um, recruiting predominantly from different ethnic groups, and they control different territory. And in this territory that they control, the militia wants to make sure that they're safe, that they don't have, you know, um, uh, what's the expression, fifth yeah fifth columnists in their um, in their uh, in their backyards or behind their on their side of the front lines. And so, to make sure that they are safe within their enclave they want to make sure that they uh, get rid of hostile militants. The question is, who is a hostile militant? This is the legibility problem, right? the identification problem. How do you identify who is a threat? And this is where I argue that you have sort of high information settings and lower information settings. And so in high information settings, places where, um, and this is in a setting where you know that hostile militants are gonna be coming from the other, they're gonna be members of the other ethnic or sectarian community, right? So in areas where you can tell, among non-coethnics, among members of the other group, who is a militant and who is neutral. In those places, uh, the armed organizations can target only the hostile militants and they can leave neutral non-coethnics in place. This this is the kind of areas then where coexistence, you can get coexistence. Coexistence can survive even though you have an ethnic war or a war that flows partly along an ethnic division. And the key there is sort of being able to identify who is neutral, who's a militant. The problem is areas where the armed organization knows that there are hostile militants in a particular area, but all they know is that those hostile militants are members of a different community. They don't know who those militants are within that community. They don't know among members of that other community who is neutral and who is a militant. And so those are the areas then where if you don't have any other information to go on, uh, ethnicity is sort of a last resort in this setting. If you don't know anything else, uh, if you have no other options, no other way of addressing these militants, just displace all members of that other ethnic group. That way, you know that you've displaced the full subset of, of hostile militants as well. That's sort of the basic argument that, that I make in, so, in terms. So, of how do
0: they happening. go about? So, how do they go about then getting this kind of information that allows them to decide?
1: So, this comes from from the sort of deep ties that these armed organizations have in the communities uh, that they represent, for lack of a better word. So, basically, one thing. That I definitely noted in Lebanon, which is quite common in other civil wars as well, and which people like Paul Stanleyland and and Sarah Parkinson have written about at length, is these armed organizations, these militias, they didn't come out of thin air. They really grew out of of, um, organizations with deep ties in their own ethnic communities. So specifically the Christian militias, most of them were political parties before the civil war broke out. And so when the civil war breaks out, these are not militias that sort of come into an area where they have no ties to the people that, that, that live there. These are parties that had deep ties to activists, and, and often their new militia fighters are former party supporters or party activists or party loyalists who often participate in these uh, wartime activities, whether that's fighting on the front lines or providing logistics for fighters. They often do that in their own community, in their own neighborhood. And so when these organizations operate in areas where their um, supporters, their, their fighters, their loyalists, are community members, that's when the sort of org- organization uh, can tap into these local sources. And so if you compare this, for instance, with um, think about something like American Marines operating in Baghdad, right? And they always have this issue that they need to find informants and how they solicit collaboration among people in the area. Uh, and this was sort of much, very much the idea that I had in mind when I came out to Lebanon, because that's so much of the literature now writing about counterinsurgency and arguing that it's it's hard for these militias to solicit uh, collaboration among locals in areas where they operate, and in Lebanon it's the other way around, because these often these local residents who have valuable information. Sometimes they're the very same people who are local residents who are volunteers for the militia. And so if you're in a neighborhood where half the neighborhood comes out at lunchtime to give sandwiches to your fighters because they want to support the fighters, there's sort of there is no problem of soliciting collaboration. That's something you have already. Mm-hmm. And in those settings, when locals then also can tell the armed organization and say, okay, here are the non-coethnics in this area. you know, here are the Muslims in our neighborhood. Here are a couple of guys that we don't trust. We think that they are um, you know we've seen them in demonstrations with with a PLO or they use uh, communist language or they get you know the communist newspapers in, in the in the mail. Those are people we don't trust, but here are some other the other Muslims in the neighborhood. You know, we trust them. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're not a problem. Those guys, we, we're happy to have them. We want them to stay here. We want the, the place to be intermixed. We don't want to harm harm. Um, we don't want to harm someone who's innocent who's neutral. When you are in those types of neighborhoods where the armed organizations can tap into these really really detailed um, information, that's when they're able to make this sort of distinction at the individual level. And there are some things that always come up in the interviews one was schools in areas that had been integrated muslims and christians in the same schools people would say well of course we knew who was trouble because they had been in the political organizations when we were in school together at age 14 you know and and the other thing that came up was this uh, what newspaper do you read in the morning because hmm. neighbors would know what newspapers others were reading so if you have a muslim neighbor in a christian neighborhood and you see that he's read, reading the communist newspaper every morning you're like okay this guy is probably trouble." but somebody who you know doesn't read the news or 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 reads something that's perceived as neutral, that person might be perceived as neutral by the neighbors, might not be perceived as a potential militant.
0: That's interesting. So then in the book, you go into really fine grained detail then on a couple of cases. You focus on the first two years of the civil war and uh, you really do show this really striking divergence between communities that might be right next to each other. Walk us through this a little bit, like a couple of examples of how this plays out on the ground. Sure.
1: So the first two years, I think this is 1975, 1976, when the war's just breaking out. Uh, and at this point, it's really a contest between, on the one hand, a set of militias that are get described as Christian militias. They have just about exclusively Christian fighters. They have some like token Shia who are into Lebanese nationalism, but it's, it's really Christian militias. Uh, and they're fighting against the coalition of the Palestinian organizations, especially the PLO, uh, left-wing organizations in Lebanon, and some parties that have more of a, a Muslim character. And so, for these reasons, it often gets display uh, gets labeled as a sort of Muslim versus Christian fight. Um, but what's really going on, I think, is when the war breaks out, then these different militias they're trying to attack supporters of the other um, of the other set of militias. So the Christian it. militias they're not trying to kill Muslims in any way; they're trying to break down the PLO to break down the sort of armed left wing uh, presence in Lebanon to break down what they perceive as a um, Palestinian you know military occupation of their of their um, homeland in a way
0: and it's partly uh, territorial they want to control a village or a neighborhood or
1: exactly so both both coalitions in this war are trying to to conquer territory basically to take control of the entire nation of the entire country uh, and in this um, they're trying to uh, both sides know that the country is going to remain intermixed and so again uh, they're not trying to the plo isn't trying to kill christians in fact they have some number of lebanese christians who are sympathizers of their organization they even have some christian fighters with with the left-wing organizations and so i think this this gets labeled sometimes as a sectarian muslim versus christian struggle Uh, and it's true that these militias recruit predominantly from these two different groups but in the way one way to think about it is to think of it as party id And if you think of it as party ID trumping sectarian identity, what's going on is not that the um, PLO is trying to kill Christians. They're trying to kill party ID affiliated, people who are affiliated with these large Christian militias. And likewise, the Christian militias aren't trying to kill Muslims. They know that it's going to be an intermixed country. They're going to have to rule a country that's probably about 50% Muslim. What they're trying to do in their mind is they're trying to destroy the Palestinian armed presence and break down the, the left wing organizations as well. So sorry, I don't know if that was exactly uh, an no, answer I, to your exact I, let's question. Let's talk
0: about individual, let's talk about some individual neighborhoods. Like, uh, oh, yeah, you, sure. Yes, yeah, so you've, you've got one where they end up expelling everybody and others where they let people live. So, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about it.
1: Absolutely. So one of the famous um, neighborhoods that gets cleansed is, is this one called Carantina. This is a poor neighborhood next to the port facilities in Beirut. And it's sort of, it's a bit of a shanty town. Uh, The people who live there are generally uh, day workers at the port facilities. Uh, These are people who have migrated into Beirut in the sort of 50s and 60s in this pattern that you see all over the global south, right, of of migration of people from the countryside into the cities. And then people fail to get into the sort of formal labor market, the formal housing market, and they end up in shanty towns. And so Beirut has some of this just the same way as like Rio de Janeiro or or, um, places in South America or in, in Africa. And so you have these shanty towns, Quarantina is one of them, and it's it's predominantly Sunni Muslims. There are some other, there are some Kurds, maybe some Armenians, uh, but it's, it's predominantly a sort of Lebanese Sunni. Um, some Palestinians, but really small numbers. It's predominantly a Sunni Muslim, uh, Lebanese Sunni Muslim neighborhood. And because this neighborhood is, uh, the people who work there are sort of day laborers, they're not part of... Um, the formal labor market, formal housing market. Uh, they're not registered to vote in the location where they live. Uh, they're sort of outsiders in the system, and this becomes quarantine becomes a really fertile soil for um, all sorts of left wing and Palestinian groups. Because these are, you know, these are like the downtrodden, and this is the '60s, '70s, right? So there's also this like right. Marxist uh, undertones. of so these are the exploited people who are being exploited by global imperialism, and the sort of this effusion between this, they're downtrodden in the labor market, and there also there's this sectarian. Uh, conflict where they are, are um, at, a, at a disadvantage in a sectarian system run by, uh, dominated by Christian interests. And so there's sort of this this fusion of these different um, narratives. And so predictably this quarantina then becomes a hotbed of sort of left- wing activism. The Palestinian groups are active there. People who live there generally sympathize with with um, left wing and Palestinian groups. And there are, there are probably small numbers of people there who maybe have a gun in the house. There are maybe small numbers of Palestinian fighters who move into this neighborhood for strategic reasons. Um, it's right by the port and right by a major highway. So if you have a presence there, you can kind of collect intelligence and then the Palestinians definitely do that. But this is also a place where like most people who live there are just poor working families. Mm-hmm. This is not sort of, most people who live there are not militia operatives in any way. But because there are some militia operatives there and because it's close to a highway, that these militias at times they go in and, and um blockade the highway. They put up uh, checkpoints and stuff. And this is a major highway that runs throughout the coast that connects various parts of Christian Lebanon. And so from the perspective of the Christian militias, quarantina, it's a massive problem. Once the civil war breaks out, like this this just has to end. The Christian forces know they have to control the ports, they have to control this highway. They cannot have this, this neighborhood full of, of Palestinian commandos uh, right on their doorstep, actually in, in the midst of their enclave, um, separating parts of their enclave from each other. And so early on, when the war breaks out, uh, the Christian militia forces mount a major effort to um, solve this military problem, basically. And so they seal off Carantina. Uh, they um, besiege it, basically, for, I believe, about two days. And then they enter. And there is some military resistance as they enter. And, and they basically um, win this gun battle to take control of quarantina over the course of a day or so. And when... When they've completed this, then there are some, the people who fought back are are largely dead and the people who are still there uh, are largely just poor families. But from the perspective of the Christian militias, they don't know anything about the people who live there. They aren't sure that, you know, did we kill, did all the commandos die in this battle or there's still Palestinian operatives living here? They just don't know. And so instead of leaving people there and thinking the people who are there are neutral because they can't be trusted to be neutral, what they do is... They phone up Yasser Arafat and they say, okay, now we've taken out Quarantina. We need a ceasefire tomorrow at noon so we can get this population. We need to move this population from our side of the front lines to your side of the front lines. Hmm. So they set the ceasefire. Uh, they borrow buses and trucks from anybody who has them. So they call up uh, you know, construction companies. They, they actually call up the Red Cross, which is kind of bizarre because then the uh, Red Cross vehicles become implicated in this, this um, de facto instance of ethnic cleansing. They put all of the civilians, all of the community members on these buses and trucks, they drive them down to the front lines. And at the hour of noon, when there's an agreed ceasefire for an hour, they have all these uh, community members cross into exile on the other side of the front lines. And this is sort of a pre-arranged population swap almost. And so this is, um, this is the fa- And nobody's ever allowed to come back to Quarantina. Quarantina today is a commercial area by the, by the port. It's all been rebuilt. Everything that was there has been raised. Uh, it's mostly sort of light industry warehouses uh, because of the location next to the port. Nobody's ever allowed to come back. And this so, is sort of.
0: So now let's compare that to uh, a neighborhood where you don't see that kind of uh, mass expulsion.
1: So, an example of that would be the area of Baidun. So, this is, I mean, if you walk from Carantina, you can get to Baidun in like 10, 15 minutes. And this is still in the heart of East Beirut, uh, controlled by the same militia groups. Um, same distance to the front lines, really close to the front lines in the center of this like, important commercial uh, area. And there's also, um, at the heart, this is at the heart of the Christian neighborhood of Ashrafiyeh, there's a small segment called Baidun. And here, like Karantina, there is a small population, a small Muslim population. Uh, they're not quite, it's not quite a shanty shantytown, um, the way it is in Karantina. In but it's low income, these are working class uh, Muslims. So in that sense, and they're, and they're Sunni Muslims um, overwhelmingly. So uh, these are this is another set of Sunni Muslims living under what looks on the surface like somewhat the similar circumstances. Circumstances, And yet in Baidun, there is no violence whatsoever. And I think there is, um, this is more of, Baidun is more integrated into Ashrafia. I think people are mixed a little bit more. Um, there is some residential intermixing. Uh, I believe the, the Sunni community, there never was a separate school just for the Sunni community. And so this is more of an intermixed population. They live a little bit more intermixed with their Christian neighbors. And so here, small numbers of individuals are forced out to Baidun. And it's possible that they were, were threatened. Uh, I didn't find any evidence that there was actually bloodshed in, in Baidun. I believe there wasn't. Um, it's not recorded in this Ministry of the Displaced publication as a place that had active bloodshed, although there may have been threats that made these select individuals go. But so here what we see is Christians sort of looking at the Muslims who are living uh, nearby and sort of checking, you know, who is getting what kind of newspaper in the mail, who has been taking place in these uh, left-wing or Palestinian demonstrations that are a big feature of late 60s, early 70s Lebanon. There are demonstrations and rallies quite a lot. Have you seen your neighbours in any of those rallies? And the people then who have these clues about them that make them look like an activist those are being um highlighted the neighbors sort of know who they are and the neighbors will tell these they will relay this information to at, at first to you know the police or, or somebody in the community to sort of tell them please put a stop to this um, and then that doesn't happen the civil war breaks out and at that point uh, the militias are seen as the main agents of action and so the the locals will make sure that this information reaches the militias and the militia one way or another will sort of expel these these particular individuals who are are seen as potential troublemakers or potential threats.
0: So the the book is, as we've been discussing, it's a really kind of fine-grained look at these first two years of the Lebanese civil war, but the theoretical ambitions are larger than that. And uh, so maybe as a last uh, thing we can talk about is, How do you think that this work should inform our thinking about civil wars and uh, kind of violence against civilian populations?
1: Absolutely. We've been really uh, dealing with a micro here in in the podcast. So if we zoom out a little bit, Mm -hmm. I think one of the big contributions that I'm trying to make in this book is to think of Lebanon as a non-separatist ethnic conflict. And so I would argue that most of the work that we have in political science has either studied ideological wars, where you can't can't look at somebody and tell if they're a communist or a fascist. So these ideological wars, um, like Spain, like uh, Greece, like uh, Colombia, this has been one of the main things. um, uh, A lot of the most influential work has studied this type of ideological wars. And then we have ethnic separatist wars. And so this would be sort of Eastern Bosnia, this would be um, partition of Greece and Turkey, this would be partition of India and Pakistan, where you have two ethnic communities and somebody's trying to create a new homeland. So, so somebody's trying for political reasons to separate two communities and then go from having an intermixed community into two sort of homogeneous communities with, with new borders, new international borders and so on. And we have quite a lot of work on, on separatist conflicts too. And I think because a lot of this growth in ethnic conflict studies and political science, it happens in the nineties. And so a lot of people have Bosnia as their kind of frame of reference when they're doing this work. And so I think we have a lot of work on, on those conflicts as well. And what I'm looking at is the third possibility. It's ethnic conflicts. So you can tell who is a member of what, of what side and that makes them more or less likely to, to be uh, hostile uh, to you and your interests and in your group. Uh, but nobody has separatist intentions. So nobody in Lebanon, and this is really important, nobody is trying to create a new homeland. The Christians aren't trying to secede. Uh, nobody's trying to create a Muslim country. Everybody knows when the Lebanese civil war breaks out, everybody knows that when the war is over, the country is going to remain intermixed roughly 50-50 between Muslims and Christians. And so I think this, this creates this incentive then to moderate the amount of violence that the militias use. And I think this, this category of wars, the non-separatist wars, I think it's very understudied in the discipline. I think we have a lot of good work on ideological wars, a lot of good work on, on separatist wars, But these these conflicts where you have conflict between two ethnic groups and they're quite identifiable and you can figure out who's in your group or the other community, uh, but you still sort of know that one way or another, you're gonna have to live with these other people. Even though you have this massive conflict that's caused political violence to the extent of a civil war, you're still gonna have to live with the other community when the war is over one way or another. Even if you're victorious, you're gonna have to rule over a country that 50% consists of the other group. And these wars, I find, uh, I do a very quick empirical uh, breakdown of wars in the book. And I find that these non-separatist wars, they heavily cluster in the Arab world and sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, These separatist wars, uh, quite a lot of them in Central and Eastern Europe actually, and also a lot in South and Southeast Asia. Uh, Ideological conflicts, especially common in Latin America, a lot of left-wing insurgencies and conflicts over land and and the relationship with the United States. Non-separatist wars, almost all of them that I find in my empirical um, analysis of this phenomenon, almost all of them take place in the Arab world or in Sub-Saharan Africa. So I think maybe that's also why we haven't, uh, people have looked at, not as many people have looked at at ethnic conflicts in these uh, settings perhaps, or at least not violence in these conflicts as much. I think the, civ- the study of civil war violence has heavily clustered either on ethnic conflict with separatist ambitions or in ideological civil wars. And so I think that's, that's something that I want to contribute here. And I want to point out also that there is this, Big geographic difference where this region, or these two regions, the are world, sub Saharan Africa, uh, ethnic conflicts tend to be non separatist in nature.
0: That's really interesting. Um, and we've been, st- we've been speaking to uh, Niels Hegerdahl about his new book, Friend or Foe. Uh, Niels, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate that. Thank
0: you. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined on the article segment this week by Emily Scott, postdoctoral researcher at McGill University, author of the new article, Compromising Aid to Protect International Staff, just published in the Journal of Global Security Studies, Open Access. Uh, Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us about this article then.
3: Yeah, so um, broadly, I really wanted to understand with this work how attacks on aid workers, on healthcare, and on civilians were changing humanitarian organizational behavior, uh, particularly in the Middle East and in the Syria case. And I was interested in what kinds of services organizations delivered or denied and how much of this was um, shaped by security considerations. Um, more specifically though, I was really interested in the ways humanitarian organizations, international organizations and international non-governmental organizations were compromising and, on, um, and also on the way, compromising on the ways that they were delivering aid um, with what were likely negative effects on the quality of, deli- of aid delivered to conflict um, and crisis affected populations. So my interest was particularly on humanitarian health responses in Syria and in the MENA region. Um, And in this sector, attacks on aid had triggered the ICRC's uh, launch of its healthcare in danger uh, initiative and MSF's medical care under fire project. So there was a great deal of really interesting work ongoing and new data being collected um, and a real focus on quantitative data collection. Um, So during the war in Syria and through 2016 and 2017, when I was conducting the bulk of this research, aid organizations were delivering aid differently. So we see a variety of what I call compromised approaches to aid. Uh, So one is clandestine or underground operations. And here you can think of moving hospitals underground, removing emblems or not providing GPS coordinates, um, which historically has been done to protect hospitals from armed actors who might, if they're following the laws of war, avoid targeting those hospitals. Um, a second way that, that these organizations were acting differently was adopting more cross-border work. And we actually see an unprecedented resolution from the UN Security Council 2165 saying that there can be cross-border activities into Syria across conflict lines and without permission. So this is really unprecedented. Um, and then you saw an increasing reliance on remote or blind management. So this is when you know, the senior officials in an organization are not on the ground, they're not near the project. Um, or and they may just send funds or provide some very basic assistance. Um, And then a fourth way that we see pretty significant compromises is that there are increasing conflict actor aligned approaches to aid delivery. So this is where organizations that traditionally have said we're going to work on both sides of conflict say, okay, we're only going to work on the rebel side or we're only going to be working through um, local groups that are aligned with the Syrian regime. Um, So we see this really, these are not new, but they're definitely increasing during the um, Arab uprisings and in Syria in particular. Um, And what they do is they remove international expert support, they remove witnesses to atrocities and managers from humanitarian operations, and for these reasons become compromises to the ways that humanitarian organizations are doing business. Um, And what was particularly interesting is that these kinds of compromises most protected international staff from violence. And yet, um, while it is the case that these attacks against aid workers across the board were and are, they continue to be on the rise, um, data from Insecurity Insights Security Number Database uh, also shows that international staff fatalities as a proportion of all staff fatalities have been in relative decline since the mid nineties, While fatalities and kidnappings of nationally hired staff, uh, as a proportion of all staff fatalities, are actually rising and significantly. So what I try to do in this article is I really set out to understand why new compromises to aid delivery uh, emerged uh, that would best protect international staff, an already best protected class of aid worker, and then more broadly, whose security really matters in the aid world.
0: So before we get into the, uh, the actual argument and the explanation, let's talk a little bit about the research that you did and um, you know, the data the methods. How did you get access to these, these uh, organizations working in such difficult conditions in Syria?
3: Well, I'll start with the access question. I mean, I, I was not working inside Syria with these organizations for, for ethical and access reasons. I didn't move into the country, but I did work with the organizations in Lebanon and Jordan. Um, And I have a background in humanitarianism, which really gave me an inside track to be able to access and and, in a pretty open way um, a number of aid workers. Uh, And what I did was I investigated these behaviors at two organizations, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, and MSF, or Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. Um, And I did so from 2010, or I looked at historically from 2010 in Syria and neighboring states and into 2016, 2017, when I was doing my fieldwork. Um, And so for me, the access issue was really helped by being both an insider and an outsider, which had its own challenges. Um, The war in Syria in particular was a really interesting place to do this because it was an area of really high global interest and humanitarian funding. And we also saw this really rapid and increasing involvement of humanitarian actors. Um, It was the kind of conflict that that sparked moral and political interest in IOs and INGOs, international organizations, international non-governmental organizations really wanted to be on the ground there. They wanted to be visible uh, actors in the midst of this. And so the ICRC and the MSF's compromises become particularly interesting because they are a very small universe of of very risk-tolerant organizations, traditionally very willing to go to -to hard-to-reach places and to work alongside violent actors. And so the research is really designed to understand why it is that these two very risk-tolerant organizations compromise as a way to then further understand why organizations that are perhaps a little less risk tolerant might also be doing the same thing. So there's a bit of a way to have a bit of measured inference there. Um, and so I actually engaged in about nine or 10 months of political ethnography following kind of Ed Schatz's approach mm-hmm. to political ethnography uh, in Lebanon and Jordan. Um, and when Syria was limited, I really uh, tried to track the movements and deci- the access to Syria was limited. I tried to track the movements and decisions of organizations inside of Syria through press briefings and interviews with aid workers. Um, And I conducted about 120 interviews, um, and these ranged from between 30 minutes and four hours um, with aid workers and with security experts. And I was really trying to get to know these um, various aid workers and security experts in order to have real conversations with Mm -hmm. them about what the processes and mechanisms uh, behind uh, their decision makings really were. Um, And I I looked at security as just one potential driver. And so my focus in these interactions with my interlocutors was really on how new behaviors were justified by aid organizations and um, aid workers, and then how this fit into a broader narrative about rates of attack and incidents facing particular aid workers. Um, And then to understand where new behaviors were compromises for an organization, I looked for moments when aid workers expressed discomfort with modes of operation or describe them as different or new, um, or when they questioned how justified they were. So at the core of all of these interviews was a relational approach to Mm -hmm. interviewing. And that really served me well to then identify things that were not so clear uh, at the outset.
0: So you see different kinds of adaptation strategies by the two organizations. Uh, So what do you see and why do you think it is?
3: Well, I think that in terms of you know, why it is, I guess in the end, the broadest finding when you have this real push in humanitarianism to gather data, collect data about attacks and to use that to to push them to change behavior is that rates of attack do not really explain compromises to aid, who is protected and who takes on greater risk. Um, And In fact, when international staff in particular were confronted by the idea that they were at no greater risk than their national staff counterparts, they became really uneasy and uncomfortable. Uh, And they also tended to really maintain that the environment was uniquely dangerous to them. Um, So they pushed back against uh, the idea that the data was, was reflecting their relative security. And so what I do is I actually identify three mechanisms that seem to be driving compromises after 2010 and in the Middle East. And the first is that exceptional violent events are really shaping organizational and staff beliefs in a wider trend. Like ISIS or... Exactly. Yeah. So we see certain events like the kidnapping of MSF by the Islamic Mm -hmm. State in 2014. um, And then the bombing, even going back to the bombing of, of the Canal Hotel in 2003 in Baghdad, as shocking the conscience of organizations. And these kinds of incidents really prime them and aid workers to perceive greater risk and exposure. Um, This relates to a second mechanism, which is that everyday exposure, which often goes unreported, leads humanitarians to really see threat as a baseline. So regular incidents, think uh, confrontations with armed actors or threats from patients or sexual harassment in town have really deep effects on aid worker perceptions and tend to be overlooked by organizations who see aid workers' ability to cope as an essential humanitarian skill. Um, And then these these experiences tend to be most commonly reported by international staff, and then this suggests uh, that they would be more likely to, uh, to be threatened and increases that sense. Um, And this leads into a a third uh, mechanism, which is that the influence of violence against aid workers increases because organizations actually reward risk taking exposure and survival. And so we see aid workers gaining legitimacy when they work alongside, for example, the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, or the Taliban, or particularly strong and controlling states. And these interactions and events become exaggerating in their retelling and because they're regularly used to signal know-how and expertise. So in meetings, we would see aid workers um, who wanted their ideas to be listened to, um, framing them with reference to past experience in Afghanistan, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would give them some kind of social currency. So these three mechanisms allow a belief that international workers are most at risk to take hold. And this belief becomes very robust, even when data collection efforts by organizations themselves show this isn't the case, it really isn't able to budge that that core belief. Um, there's There's another element there, which is also really interesting, which is that A perception that the nature of threat to aid workers had changed and not the rate or number really took hold and altered behaviors Mm -hmm. um, amongst aid workers. And this was rooted in the idea that in the Middle East, after 2010 in particular, there was a shift in the security environment. And for international aid workers, they really pointed to security guarantees that were no longer being guaranteed by non-state and state-armed groups. Uh, They talked about kidnappings and killings uh, not in number, but in, but in their nature, so that they were increasingly performative, brutal or cruel, really altered the way that, that international workers were seeing, were seeing the world. And then another element there was that there was a backsliding or a perceived backsliding by UN member states on commitments to international humanitarian law or the laws of war. Um, as well as norm defiant uh, or what they described as norm defiant uh, actors in the Middle East, non-state actors. Um, So often we we hear discussions of the Kunduz bombing in Afghanistan as as really indicative of of the global community's uh, lack of respect for what has been a very uh, relatively robust set of international norms protecting aid workers and healthcare um, from violence during conflict.
0: But you also talk quite a bit about the, um, the ways in which the, uh, the aid actors themselves uh, kind of changed or violated traditional norms in terms of their delivery of aid into Syria.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there are um, a number of different ways that goes on. So, you know, I talked about um, that there are so, for example, MSF is a, is a traditionally it, it talks about a kind of a moral pragmatist approach to delivering aid. Um, so the organization is very comfortable breaking rules. They're open sometimes about that. There's a, a piece, uh, "Humanitarian Negotiations Revealed, uh, which talks about the ways in which MSF has um, had to break rules in order to gain access in Sri Lanka and, and in various um, geographic contexts. And this willingness uh, when the, the goal is to deliver care to do so without state permissions. Um, And there is a willingness to work around the state, um, which uh, has been ongoing for decades. In Syria, they were very willing to do so. Um, Some some aid workers at MSF argue that this really compromised their ability to work with the Assad regime and to negotiate access to Assad Mm regime-controlled areas and limited their activities to rebel-controlled areas. Um, While on the other hand, we see ICRC at the same time um, working much more through the SARC, which arguably was aligned with the, with the regime, uh, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, and therefore gaining um, much more limited access to Syria in the beginning, really focused on regime controlled areas. But then over time, as the Syrian regime gained more control, now having much greater access to much of the country um, and being able to do so without going underground. So we, we see in, in the MSF case, A lot of projects that are not reported are not public. Um, They they removed all of their emblems, they removed any indication of where these sites were uh, and they continued to operate against state, uh, without state permissions in Syria uh, quite comfortably, something that they would traditionally do.
0: It's one last question, then, is uh, you raised the uh, the idea in the article that this might be just a Syria thing, um, but it might actually have global repercussions. And so in terms of the broader significance of the research, you know, how do you how do you view this as as something generalizable to the aid community?
3: Right. I mean, a lot of uh, questions I would get when I was initially presenting this research was, you know, what if this is just a Syria effect? You know, what if this is just because the war in Syria is right there and everything is different there? And, and there's some there's some compelling elements to that argument. Um, you know, we, we do see particular discomfort with working in the Arab world um, with a history of Islamic philanthropy that might not go, you know, might not merge well with humanitarian principles, although arguably it also can. Um, and then a very limited acceptance of humanitarian organizations um, as principled actors in the Middle East. Um, and so, yes, in that way, it might be compelling to say this is a Syria effect, but more broadly, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's not so uh, clear that this kind of discomfort with, with local groups, with working with local groups, with giving local groups more than just the opportunity to take risks, but the opportunity to lead um, is maybe more broadly occurring. Um, and there is an increasing willingness due to um, support for the Black Lives Matter movement to discuss the ways in which these kinds of factors are very common to humanitarianism and the ways that racism may be blocking attempts to localize aid um, and increasing the, the risks that international organizations are willing to put on um, local actors without much security support. Um, so in terms of the, the research's broad contribution, you know, it's contributing to international security literatures and studies of organizational behavior, um, that suggests that operational compromises will follow an increase in attacks and protect a more threatened class of aid worker by saying, you know, these micro and field level, um, dynamics are really shaping organizational behavior, that individual experiences and perceptions are changing the way that organizations are acting, and also that the um, the organizations are not protecting the most threatened class of aid worker, um, and that this is a serious barrier to this movement to localize aid, which is a really really significant debate right now in the the aid industry. Um, And then again, also saying that this is just one of the many ways that the aid industry requires um, and really needs a reckoning with racism, institutionalized racism within these organizations and the tendency, um, a systematic tendency to protect white European and North American aid workers um, with particular um, nationalities and for, of particular races above others. Um, so it's really saying that this is just one of the areas where we need that conversation.
0: Well, great. We've been speaking with Emily Scott at McGill University. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's current events segment, we're going to talk to Esfandiar Batmanghalij, a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and a prolific author on matters related to the Iranian economy. Uh, Esfandiar, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So I wanted to talk to you about the, uh, the, the possibility of coming back into negotiations over return to the JCPOA and really talk about the, the effects of sanctions and where that fits into all of this. So you've written a lot about that. So maybe we could start if you could just give us a broad sense of how the maximum pressure campaign and the return of sanctions has affected the Iranian economy.
2: So sanctions have had a significant impact on the Iranian economy, um, not just since uh, President Trump reimposed sanctions, but really over the last decade when the international sanctions campaign uh, was tightened on Iran in 2012. And I think there are many, many impacts that we could talk about. But I think the easiest thing to focus on is really uh, inflation. And sanctions have been a source of persistent high inflation in the Iranian economy. And they, sanctions serve to cause inflation really in two ways. One is that they create significant fiscal pressure for the government. Sanctions make it difficult for the Iranian government to earn uh, foreign exchange revenue, uh, principally because oil exports are significantly curtailed. And in addition, Iran has significant reserves uh, from the trade that it has conducted in the past, but those reserves are frozen and therefore the government can't tap into its savings to make up for the shortfalls. And in response, the government tends to print money and that uh, sort of expansion of the money supply contributes to inflation. The second way that we get inflation from sanctions is actually something that might be familiar to people uh, in the US and elsewhere this year, which is that sanctions cause significant disruptions to supply chains. Uh, Both because many suppliers stop uh, selling to uh, a country that is under sanctions, and so you have a constraint in the range of countries or companies that are willing to provide goods. And also because even if a company is willing to export goods to a country like Iran, it can be very difficult to do so. There are fewer banks that are willing to process payments and fewer logistics companies that are willing to make sure those goods arrive. And for those banks and companies, logistics providers that are willing to work with Iran, they charge a premium. So the cost of goods also increases once they arrive in Iran. Uh, And as a consequence, you have significant rates of annual inflation. At the moment, it's uh, edging towards 60%. Uh, and for Iranian households, that's really quite devastating. It means that uh, purchasing power is, is really constrained. And it also means that if uh, there's a significant event for an Iranian household, like someone loses their job or savings run out, it can be really difficult in an economic environment like this to uh, basically dig yourself out of that hole and to, and to get back to the standard of li- living that you had. Similarly, for companies, uh, the high rates of inflation make it very difficult to plan for the future and to make investments. And so all of these things compounded basically mean that Iran experiences low uh, economic growth under sanctions uh, after the initial shock when sanctions tend to push an economy like Iran into an economic contraction.
0: So you talked about the kind of the broad scope of sanctions over the last decade or so. Uh, With maximum pressure, what what was added to it? What's the difference between these sanctions and the earlier ones? Is it just the oil sector and the financial sector, or is there something more?
2: Well, the Trump administration made a very concerted effort to drive Iran's oil exports to zero, which is something that uh, the Obama administration Uh, didn't quite do because right around the time that the financial sanctions were tightened, uh, which also applied to the oil sector in Iran uh, in 2012, the negotiations between Iran and the P5 plus one really uh, started uh, just a year later in 2013. You had the initial talks around the that led to the joint plan of action, the interim deal before the JCPOA. And so there was a very short period where Iran's oil was really trying to be pushed out of the market. We've had a longer period since Trump reimposed sanctions on Iran's oil sector in May of 2019. And initially, it appeared that the administration, the Trump administration, had been relatively successful in driving Iran's oil exports to historic lows. Over the last uh, basically nine months or so, there has been an uptick in oil purchases by China, which is Iran's most important oil customer. And at the moment, they are purchasing oil in defiance of U.S. sanctions. And given those increased exports and the higher oil price, it's been a little bit of a buoy for the Iranian economy. But broadly speaking, that period from 2019 into the beginning of 2020, which then you had the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact of that on the global economy and on the Iranian economy, um, it's been sort of twin crises that were incredibly difficult for the Iranian government to manage. And you had essentially three years of economic contraction in Iran. And uh, the country only just recently started to come out of that period of, of prolonged crisis.
0: Now, you've written um, that it, at some level, the uh, Iranian economy has been forced to adapt to a condition of seemingly permanent sanctions. Describe a little bit about what they've done in order to try and you know, have an economy in the face of all of this.
2: Well, Iranian officials uh, like to talk about something called the resistance economy, and it's kind of a slogan that they use to point to this idea that, uh, you know, astute economic management and really trying to get uh, the economy mobilized in a particular way will allow Iranian officials to neutralize the impact of sanctions. Uh, and so a lot of people have tried to look at that uh, slogan and have have believed that there are probably a range of Iranian economic policies that are responsible for the general resilience of the economy in the face of sanctions. I think it's a little bit of a misdirection there. Um, and the reason I say that is that most of the economic resilience, as far as my research shows, and I think the research of, of other economists in Iran is really a bottom-up phenomenon. And the way we can explain that is that you have around 27 million people uh, in the Iranian labor force and every day they wake up and they you know, go and try and earn their daily wage so that they can put food on the table basically at, at the most simple level. And a lot of the economic resilience that we see at this kind of macro level, this big picture level, really comes from the fact that people don't give up when they are faced with significant economic hardship. They try and find a way to make it work. And by extension, companies don't just decide to shut up, you know, close shop when the economic situation deteriorates. Rather, they work really hard to figure out a way to survive. And so that survival instinct, which has seen... Um uh, individuals often adapt by taking second jobs or engaging in informal work to make sure that they earn enough to deal with things like the high inflation that I talked about, or companies finding uh, new streams of products and services to offer or tapping into new opportunities, namely in the case of Iran, uh, one of the things that we've seen is, is, is an expansion in non-oil exports, because manufacturing entities in Iran that uh, faced a stagnant domestic demand, but also had to deal with the devaluation of the currency, which made it more expensive for them to purchase the goods that they need to produce, the products that come off their assembly lines, Uh, realized that they could leverage the fact that Iran's currency had gotten cheaper, because in turn, it means that their goods become cheaper on global markets, and instead they could go and target regional, uh, in particular, regional exports. And so we've seen this development over the last decade, of significant Iranian exports to countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, and then to the UAE where goods are then exported to uh, other uh, markets. And so these adjustments are, you know, things that uh, I'm sure that uh, Iranian officials would like to take credit for, but I'm not sure that that's totally fair of them to do. You know, what we're really talking about is kind of the grit of Iranian households and companies that have just tried to um, make the best that they can with a very difficult situation.
0: Well, let's switch to the government side then um, and talk about the, the possibility of a return to uh, negotiations over the JCPOA. And in terms of sanctions relief and more broadly, the, the sanctions regime, what is Iran looking for and what would they need to see in order to uh, be willing to go, you know, to go back into the deal?
2: So the Iranians, uh, I think the thing to emphasize is that for Iran, economic resilience does not mean that sanctions relief is not an attractive or important goal. And the reason that that's the case is that although the country uh, is now in a situation where it is growing again, that growth is relatively anemic. Uh, It is fragile. Uh, It can be interrupted by any number of uh, different exogenous or, or endogenous events. And uh, at the end of the day, low levels of growth are politically insufficient. And what I mean by that is that you have a population where there is significant degrees of economic pessimism. You know, 70% of Iranians, according to recent polling from the University of Maryland, uh, believe that the economic situation is uh, basically bad. Um, and that that has gotten worse over time, even as the economic situation, if you look at the macroeconomic data, has stabilized. And the reason for that, I believe, is that, you know, Iranians are looking at this decade and they see it as a lost decade. Uh, In terms of pure numbers, Iran's economy today is basically the size it was a decade ago. But in terms of lived experience, what really has happened is that uh, for many Iranian households, they have fallen in their standard of living and they're just scraping by. Whereas, you know, before they had a reasonable expectation that in the coming years, they would uh, have greater economic means, greater economic opportunity. And there's a political significance to that pessimism in that it has created significant strains for state-society relations. And we see that in labor mobilizations and different kinds of protests that have manifested in the last few years, where Iranians are taking the government to task for economic mismanagement, And we see it in a sense a kind of pervading sense that was also reflected in the elections which had historic low turnout that um, there's a lack of faith that uh, government technocrats can actually sort of uh, course correct here and get iran going in the right direction so while the economic uh, pain of sanctions is not an existential issue for the iranian government or really its general stability Um, What it does mean is that if there is any desire on the part of the Raisi administration to govern effectively and to have a successful uh, kind of first or second term, they need to remove this drag on growth and they need to kind of rectify uh, the the fact that in the current circumstances, people see themselves in a very stagnant uh, and kind of disheartening position. And so I think for that reason, sanctions relief is something that the government wants to pursue. Now, very practically, uh, what they want uh, in the negotiations and their key demand is to make sure that the sanctions relief that is offered as part of a restored nuclear deal is implemented more successfully and more fully than it was in the period from 2016 to 2018. And what uh, the Iranians mean by this uh, sort of demand and what they're looking for is, and they often use the term guarantees to describe it, is that there were a wide range of economic initiatives that were started following the implementation of the nuclear deal in 2016 that never led to uh, any tangible outcome. Uh, Major investment deals and major acquisitions, um, for example, the acquisition of civilian airliners that simply couldn't take place because although governments had lifted sanctions, they hadn't put in place enough mechanisms or provided enough political support so that the business environment was conducive enough to a lot of complex transactions taking place. And that's what the Iranians want to make sure is different this time around, so that when they go back to their uh, public, pessimistic public, they can make the claim, look, we have addressed this problem and we are reasonably confident that the economic benefits that we will receive will be greater than those uh, that we saw between 2016 and 2018, where ultimately things were fairly disappointing and were not leading towards the path of economic normalization that the deal envisaged.
0: After after Trump uh, pulled out, though, uh, you know, Do they have any way of believing that uh, sanctions relief would be, you know, kind of real and long term enough for for these companies to make long term investments?
2: That is the billion trillion dollar question, basically. Um, But I think there are two ways to look at this. If the Iranians have a reasonable fear, and it is a reasonable fear that there may be another Republican president in 2025 who will tear up the deal once again, possibly Trump. It still behooves them to re enter the agreement, benefit from the sanctions relief for three years, give their households and companies a reprieve so that those uh, uh, households can rebuild their savings, so companies can make long delayed investments, such that if a crisis strikes again, a crisis that could include a Republican president tearing up the deal, reimposing sanctions, there is greater resiliency built into the system. So that's one argument for it. The second argument i would say is that you know at the end of the day there was limited time to actually try and bed in the nuclear deal uh, when uh under the obama administration we had basically one year from implementation of the deal until trump's election barely any time if the deal is concluded early in in 2022 um, and restored and the sanctions relief is implemented, we'll have closer to three years. And that's a big difference, one year versus three years, where the environment will look a little bit different. And the I think in addition to that, what's important to recognize is that we have a slightly different environment than we did regional countries appear to be more on board with the nuclear deal than they were previously, and they are more economically integrated with Iran than uh, even just a few years ago. And so that is something that could uh, provide a degree of embeddedness for the nuclear deal and its economic benefits. And the second thing I would highlight is that, at the very least, the bitter experience and the difficult experience of sanctions relief uh, from 2016 to 2018 was a crash course for government officials in Europe and in the US in the limitations of sanctions relief as it was provided before and so at the we are our starting position is different here there's a more sophisticated understanding that simply lifting sanctions on paper does not mean trade and investment will flow in practice and other mechanisms may need to be in place it's incumbent on the Iranian negotiators to make a good case for why those mechanisms need to be part of this new restoration of the deal, but I think they will find some sympathetic ears among Western governments. And so we might be able to create those mechanisms, uh, what I like to call technical guarantees that could then lead to a little bit more inertia for the nuclear deal, whatever happens in 2025.
0: Well, perhaps we'll find out soon. Uh, Thanks Esfandiar, for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Thanks, it was a pleasure.